All right, so we are five episodes into the fourth season of Jew, I don't know, looking at the early years of Israel from 1948 to 1967, and we have yet to get out of 1948. In fact, we've barely made it a couple of months from Israel's declaration of independence on May 14th, and that's because there's a lot happening. It's a frenetic situation. Also because I just don't know how to make good choices, but that's for another time. One of the themes that's emerging for us, I hope, is perhaps the dominant theme of Israeli history, security. And not just the basics of security, like law and order, but this deep-seated sense amongst Israelis of fear and vulnerability. When they look at a map of the Middle East back in 1948 and today, Israelis see an ocean of Arabs and a dozen hostile states crowded around them. Israel looks small and precarious on that map, pushed up against the sea. This sense of vulnerability drives this obsession with security, and of course it's not out of nowhere. The five Arab states that attacked on May 15th really were trying to eliminate Israel. It was a war for existence, no doubt. Now this vulnerability can make for steely determination, resolve, and the kinds of acts of courage and sacrifice that we've been hearing about these last few episodes. But it also meant that Israel had to make very difficult and controversial decisions. Decisions that came to have lasting consequences down through the decades. Decisions that caused great pain and even decisions that Israel's leaders realized at the time were terrible, but which they felt, in the name of security, were justified anyway. And so it was that on July 11, 1948, the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, took a strategic Arab village in the center of the country called Lida. Having driven out the Arab forces that threatened Israel's interior from the city, the IDF was left with several tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians. The request went out to David Ben-Gurion, Israel's prime minister, what to do with them. His orders came back. Two words, which may have been the most controversial phrase he ever uttered and one of the most complex decisions he ever made, and the focus of our topic today. Expel them, he ordered, and the IDF did. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So I think we can all understand why, for Israel, the Palestinians within the territory allotted to the Jewish state were always going to be a challenge. Everybody knew this. It wasn't an insurmountable problem, clearly, because 20% of Israel today is Arab. In the early years of the Zionist movement, it was expected that Palestine would eventually become a binational state, shared between autonomous communities of Jews and Arabs living amongst each other. To the extent that the mainstream Zionist movement considered what would happen with the Arabs once a Jewish homeland came into existence, generally they thought that there would be a natural sorting process. The Arabs, not wanting to live so closely to the Jews, would migrate out of the Jewish homeland on their own volition. Those who stayed would enjoy equal rights with their Jewish neighbors. I'm oversimplifying this, but I really cover this stuff more deeply in season two. Shameless self-promotion, go listen to season two. And as you heard in that season, beginning in 1920, tensions between Jews and Arabs turned violent, and by the 1930s, the Arab leadership, which by then had started to identify themselves as distinctly Palestinian rather than as Arabs living in Palestine, the Palestinian leadership adopted a policy of violent opposition to the Jewish presence, 
into any future Jewish homeland. And once the United Nations voted in favor of partition in 1947, a civil war erupted in Palestine between Jews and Arabs. It was pretty clear that, for the most part, these people were not going to be able to live together. It was also clear that the civil war was very much a fight over who would be in control of what territory once the Jewish state would be officially declared. And so here is our chief problem, territory. When the United Nations passed the partition plan in November of 1947, they divided Palestine into three parts, a Jewish state, an independent Arab state, and Jerusalem, which would be international and not owned by either Jews or Arabs. And so I've been asking this question each episode, which has multiple answers, why did only one of those things happen? Well, one part of the answer we've talked about before, Jordan ended up grabbing most of what is today the West Bank and the eastern portion of Jerusalem, including the Old City. And Egypt eventually took the Gaza Strip, too. But the other part of the answer is the Israeli side of the equation. The territories provided by the United Nations made no sense, and in the long run, they weren't sustainable. And that's because the UN simply drew lines on a map, but it's not like there were fixed borders or anything keeping these people apart. The code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Like the Pirate's Code, the Jews and the Arabs took the boundaries more as guidelines. Remember that the Jews accepted the partition plan, but the Arabs did not. Even so, Ben-Gurion realized that the map of the proposed Jewish state was impossible. The land allocated to the Jews was broken up into three different sections, each of which could be easily cut off from the other and surrounded by the Arabs. You can't have a country that is so vulnerable. And to make things worse, on Israel's first day of existence, the invading Arab states grabbed 20% of the country. So right from the start, the Jews had a ton less territory than the UN had agreed on. Okay, so the territory you've got is too thin to protect yourself. So what do you do? Well, you need more territory. And Ben-Gurion had a winning strategy to get it. There's a lot of historical debate about where Ben-Gurion stood on the question of where Israel's border should be. Right-wing Zionists generally had a pretty clear idea. Israel's borders should include any territory that was part of the ancient Jewish homeland, which would include, for instance, the entire West Bank. This is the view that animates much of the settlement building there that has been so contentious the last several decades. But Ben-Gurion was a secular leftist, and I think we can boil down his territorial principles into two broad requirements. That the border should be wherever Israel needs it to be to defend itself, and secondly, that Israel must have an overwhelming Jewish majority within its boundaries. So, enough territory to defend ourselves, and within our territory, the Jews need to be a majority. But beyond that, he was flexible. If the border was here, or over there, or needed to move a little bit one direction or the other, he was generally pretty pragmatic. And when you read Israel's Declaration of Independence, you won't find any mention in there about borders. Ben-Gurion knew that that would be decided by the coming war, and he didn't want to commit Israel either way. So this strategy on territory was both clever and farsighted, and it gave Israel maximum flexibility, because it kept everyone focused on what Ben-Gurion considered to be the main goal, emerging from the war with an intact Jewish state. But this strategy had a huge impact on the Arabs who were living inside Israel, and especially to those who were living on the edge. 
As soon as the civil war broke out in Palestine following the UN's partition plan, hundreds of thousands of Arabs began leaving Palestine. They went to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, which were in Arab hands. This was the first big wave of Palestinian refugees. And don't worry, I've got a coming episode just on Palestinian refugees, so we'll dig more into this. And by the way, I'm sort of using Arab and Palestinian interchangeably at the moment. What happens later on is that the Arabs who stay inside Israel become known as Arab Israelis because they are Israeli citizens. And those Arabs who once lived inside Israel but left as refugees became known as the Palestinians. But in reality, it's people from the same group, which is why I'm trying to use both terms. And also, by the way, it wasn't only Arabs on the move from Jewish territory. The reverse was also happening, but you never hear about it these days. Where the Arabs took territory from the Jews, like that 20% of Israel on the first day, Jews were also either expelled or fled or sometimes taken prisoner. But to simplify things, by the time Israel was created in 1948, you had Arabs living inside the new state, and of course you had Arabs living outside it, but you also had Arabs living inside contested territory. Remember, there weren't any official boundaries, which meant that one could wander from Arab territory into Israeli territory just by crossing the street or walking across an open field. And it was these Arabs that concerned Ben-Gurion, the ones who were living on the edge of Israeli territory in between Israel and its hostile Arab neighbors. The point is this. For Israel, the War of Independence was a defensive war, not a war of conquest. The goal wasn't to take over Transjordan or Egypt or Syria. The goal was to seize enough territory to push the Arabs far enough back from Jewish settlements that Israel's boundaries could be defended. A buffer zone that Israel could completely control in order to maximize its security. And in that, the war was a mixed bag, as we'll see down the road in this podcast. For instance, Israel kept Egypt far enough away from Tel Aviv that they couldn't easily threaten it. Up north, though, was a different story with Syria's army sitting right on top of Jewish settlements, making their lives miserable. The point of all this, remember, is that I'm trying to explain how Israel ended up with the territory it did at the end of the war. More territory than the United Nations had given it, and without an Arab state or an independent Jerusalem. I have absolutely no idea if this is making any sense. I guess you'll just tell me later. But let's look at an actual example, and maybe that will help us out. Let's look at what happened right smack in the middle of the buffer zone area that Ben-Gurion needed to create. An Arab village called Lida. The town of Lydda, right in the middle of Israel, is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, and is later also referenced in the New Testament. It changed hands as cities in Israel tend to do, from ancient Jewish to Roman to Byzantine Christian to Muslim to Crusader, back to the Muslims and to the Ottoman Turks and the British. In 1948, it had about 20,000 residents, nearly all of them Muslim and a few Christians. So when the UN put out the partition plan, Lida naturally was put inside Arab territory. But only just. It sat right on the blurry non-border between Israel and the theoretical Arab state. Even more importantly, it was right in the middle of the crucial highway linking Tel Aviv on the coast with Jerusalem, 
the road that the Israeli army was waging a desperate fight to control so that they could reach the 100,000 Jews under attack in Jerusalem. By then, the population of Lydda had swelled from 20,000 to 50,000 as Arabs leaving the Jewish-controlled areas found refuge in the town. But it wasn't only a haven for refugees. The Arab Legion and other Palestinian fighters were also operating in and around the town. From its central location, Arab forces could strike to the north, the south, and west to Tel Aviv from that city. So it was a crucial location for everyone. The first truce between Israel and the Arabs was brokered by the United Nations on June 11th. It held until July 9th, with both sides rearming and repositioning themselves in violation of the truce. Fighting resumed on July 9th and lasted 10 days before a second truce was declared. Lydda has become such a lightning rod that historians still today argue about exactly what happened. Who did what to whom and when are still open questions. Therefore, also what Lydda tells us about Israel's legitimacy, its moral standing, and its responsibility for the plight of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees. But the basic story goes like this. When the fighting resumed on July 9th, Israel launched an operation to push out from Tel Aviv towards Jerusalem, relieving the pressure on that critical highway and getting rid of the Arab forces that were attacking it. The operation was headed by two of our warrior gods, Yigal Alon and Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin I've been talking about the last few episodes, and Alon I talked about back in season two. Warrior gods is my term. It refers to those early military leaders who came to have an exalted place in the Israeli canon as iconic national figures. But anyway, on July 11th, Israeli forces took most of the city of Lydda in a brief but bloody battle in which several Israeli soldiers and probably several dozen Arab civilians were killed. The army confined thousands of civilians to the two mosques and a cathedral in the center of town, forming a perimeter to ward off any attacks. Still more thousands of Arabs fled the city, terrified of the Israeli forces. The city held through the night, but the next day, Jordanian forces attacked. Panic broke out as the Israeli and Arab forces again fought a short but intense battle in the streets. In the midst of the fighting, an Israeli soldier fired an anti-tank rocket at one of the mosques, crashing through the wall that killed, depending on who you ask, either a few or dozens of civilians trapped inside. By the end of the fighting, which lasted probably less than an hour, either dozens or hundreds of Arab civilians lay dead. The Arab forces were driven off, and Israel secured the town. It was then that Yitzhak Rabin recorded Ben-Gurion's order to Yigal Alon, expel them. Rabin in turn issued the order to his troops, the inhabitants of Lydda must be expelled quickly, he said, without regard to age. Shmarya Gutman was an Israeli archaeologist whom Yitzhak Rabin appointed as a kind of mayor of the newly captured town. He was charged with organizing the expulsion. Gutman recorded what he saw. A multitude of the inhabitants walked one after another, Women walked burdened with packages and sacks on their heads. Mothers dragged children after them. Occasionally, warning shots were heard. Occasionally, you encountered a piercing look from one of the youngsters in the column, and the look said, We have not yet surrendered. We shall return to fight you. Over the next 24 hours, tens of thousands of Palestinians were sent east towards Arab lines about 10 miles away. 
Some collapsed along the way, killed by exhaustion and dehydration. Some sources say it was just a handful, others say it was hundreds. It's impossible to know the real number. On July 11, 1948, Lydda was a Palestinian town of tens of thousands of Arab civilians. By July 13th, there were only a few hundred left. Zidni bifarat al-hub fika tahayyuran so what are we to make of all this? There's a lot to pick apart. And as I said, so much of how you view Lydda depends on how you view Israel, Zionism, the Palestinians, and the war. For the Palestinians, and for many Israeli historians, Lydda was nothing short of a massacre. The rocket attack on the mosque was deliberate, the expulsion was designed to be cruel, and the civilian deaths were in the hundreds or even thousands. It was ethnic cleansing the natural endpoint of Zionism, which saw a Jewish state as only for the Jews. In his book, My Promised Land, the Israeli writer Ari Shavit writes that Zionism obliterates the city of Lydda. Lydda is our black box. In it lies the dark secret of Zionism. The truth is that Zionism could not bear Lydda. If Zionism was to be, Lydda could not be. If a Jewish state was to exist in Palestine, an Arab Lydda could not exist at its center. In this, Lydda becomes a synecdoche for the Palestinian refugee experience during Israel's War of Independence, which the Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe. The Palestinian narrative claims that the same callous disregard for Palestinian lives which the Israelis showed at Lydda was repeated everywhere in Palestine, massacre after massacre that forced hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their ancestral homes. It is the sin at Israel's beginning, which invalidates Israel's entire existence. Israel shouldn't exist because it's built on Arab land. And it shouldn't exist for the moral outrage inherent in its colonialist ethnic cleansing of the peaceful Arab population. But of course, there is the other side of that argument. This side argues that Lydda fell during the heat of battle, in which perhaps several dozen Arab civilians were killed, not the hundreds or thousands alleged. That's a tragedy, but it's a common tragedy in war anywhere. And more to the point, it was a rare occurrence. Of the hundreds of Palestinian villages captured by the army, only in a few places were there massacres. And Yitzhak Rabin's claim is the only instance we know of when Ben-Gurion ever ordered an expulsion. In other similar situations, in fact, he refused to. This speaks to Ben-Gurion's strategy that I talked about, that Israel could not have a hostile Arab population in the center of its backyard. Shavit writes that the Jewish state about to be born would not survive the external battle with the armed forces of the Arab nations if it did not rid itself of the Palestinian population that endangered it from within. The historian Benny Morris, one of Israel's most critical writers, noted that both sides committed atrocities. The difference, he said, is that on the Israeli side they were the exception, but on the Arab side, they were the rule. Ari Shavit relates a further story of Shmarya Gutman, the Israeli archaeologist put in charge of Lida after it was taken. Although he was given the order to expel the Arabs, Gutman was reluctant to carry it out. It felt cruel, and instead he wanted the Arabs to leave of their own accord. He met with several of the local Arab leaders to negotiate the expulsion process, and recorded the conversation. 
When the Arabs asked what would become of the prisoners in the mosque, Gutman said not to worry, that Israel would simply treat those prisoners in the same way that the Arabs treated Jewish prisoners whom they captured. At this, the Arab leaders begged him not to, and Gutman played innocent, asking what would the problem be if the Jews simply did to the Arabs what the Arabs did to the Jews? Why would that worry you? The Arab leaders were horrified, and Gutman broke character. Don't worry, he said. We will release all the prisoners without harm on the condition that you lead everyone out of Lydda, to which the Arab leaders agreed. In the context of Ben-Gurion's territorial strategy, Lydda worked. The historian Martin Gilbert writes that the fall of Lydda and the expulsion of the Palestinians there prevented the Arab forces from closing in on Tel Aviv. The lines of tens of thousands of refugees clogging the roads slowed down the Arab legion. It further burdened the Arab forces with having to take care of all those refugees, hurting their economy and the war effort. It opened the way for the Israeli army to secure the road to Jerusalem, saving that 100,000 Jews there. So from a military standpoint, Lydda was a necessity and a success. After the war, Lydda reverted to its historical Hebrew name, Lod, which is what it's called today. Jewish immigrants moved in, mostly those from Middle Eastern countries who were themselves expelled by the Arabs. Today, it's a working class city of around 75,000, 30% Arab. And if you have ever been to Israel, you've been to Lod, though indirectly. In the 1930s, a small airstrip was built on the north side of town and it became a British Air Force base. It was captured by the Israeli forces on the same day that Lida fell. Today, that area is Ben-Gurion International Airport. <laughs> So we'll never know exactly what happened in Lydda, but the narrative remains strong on both sides, and only you can determine your own conclusions. But the fighting in July marks something of a turning point in the war, though not at all its end. By the end of the summer of 1948, Israel had pretty well gained the upper hand, and while there was still a long way to go, it seemed clear that Israel would survive, though its boundaries were yet to be determined. In the meantime, of course, there was a country to run, which means you have to build a government. Israel's political system looks a lot different than the United States's, and it's been in the news a ton recently, with not one but two elections in 2019, and it's looking like a third coming up in 2020. This has never happened before in Israeli history. So let's take a look at how it all works. Our main conclusion will be that everything is chaos, and David Ben-Gurion is totally in charge of everything. You've been listening to some Palestinian musicians today, Latrio, Jubran, Ramzi, Aboredwan, and Rimbana, which I definitely did not pronounce those right, but you can find links to these songs and the correct spelling, uh, as well as more content, as always, on my website, jewaudonow.com, and you can always email me at jewaudonowpodcast at gmail.com. I do read all your emails, uh, even though it takes me a while to get back to you. Talk to you next time. We hit the roads. See you later.